Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. So I don't know if you have been here or not. Uh, so we've actually been going through the book of First Samuel. Uh, I love teaching through Old Testament narrative. It's like my favorite thing in the world. All right, if you guys give me a chance to ever teach the Old Testament, mm, love it. Like it is just it's it, it, it is like my kind of my kind of Bible food right there. So if you have not been here at all, or maybe it's been a while, maybe you've only heard one or two of them. Essentially, the book of 1 Samuel is a pretty intriguing book because it comes on the heels of one of the darkest times in the nation of Israel. You might be asking, David, why is it dark times? Or what are these dark times? Well, these dark times, to answer the second question, are pretty stinking dark. This is an era where we see things like injustice, theft, rape become completely commonplace in Israel. Which is ironic because these are the people who are supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. And you'd be wondering, wait, why is that commonplace? That leads us to our second question. Why is it dark? It's dark because the people, though God has given them what he called a covenant and a law to live by so that they would know how to truly love their neighbor. They actually thought that they had better ideas and are trying to live under their own wisdom. The only thing, though, that that happens is it completely destroys them. It completely unravels their whole culture. And it leads to the kind of moral failure that you would never even believe and that our culture would actually not even know anything of. It was that dark. And into this darkness, we see that God speaks. We're introduced to several characters. Some of you guys might know we're going through, we're calling this unusual suspects. The reason why is if you have not noticed yet, everything in this book is upside down. We're introduced to a girl who seems like she's just a drunkard. She seems like she's an immoral woman. Even the priest comes up to her and he says, like, what are you doing praying here? Like all drunk and stuff, go home. The only problem is she wasn't drunk. She was pouring out her heart before God so much because she wanted a baby and she was never able to have a baby. And she's like, Lord, would you hear me? And he does. So we've got a woman that looks immoral. The only problem is that she's actually righteous. But right after that, we're introduced to two guys who look like they're righteous. The only problem is that they're immoral. And these two, these two guys, they're the priests of the actual temple. And what they do is they use their power and position as priests to actually earn sexual favors from women who were entering the tent or to actually use their own power for their own gain. We still see this kind of behavior today in many ways. This is not anything, this has happened since the beginning of the world, since mankind has fallen. Phineas, Hophni, that's what these two priests' names are. And through them, we see finally that the Lord raises up from Hannah, our first character, a son. And what he would do is he would actually bring the word of God back to the people. And in doing so, he would bring these people for the first time in hundreds of years out of the darkness through which they lived. 
So we saw last week that God begins with this person, Samuel. But here's the thing. He doesn't give Samuel like this easy mission from the beginning. The first thing that Samuel does is he has to pronounce judgment against his own father figure. His own father figure was the father of Hophni and Phinehas, the two little priests who were using their power. And instead of confronting them and removing them from office, what he did is he kind of lived high on the hog off of their, quote, ministry. So here we come. We're all of a sudden introduced to Samuel. And now the first thing that happens again, all right, is all of a sudden we get this break in the action. And what appears to be this random story about the ark, what's going on here? So let's take a look. Let's read verses 1 through 4 again. So chapter 4, 1 through 4, this is what it says. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up the line against Israel, and the battle spread. Israel was <gasps> defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord! Let's bring it here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. First thing we're introduced to in the story is we see that Israel is actually fighting against these people called the Philistines. Now, one of the things that you will realize and find particularly interesting is that God actually promised the people of Israel success against their enemies. And here they are, losing. You might be wondering, what in the world is that all about? Well, actually, if you think about it, they ask the same question in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today against the Philistines? Because here's how it went. They were told, as long as you keep my covenant, as long as you walk with me, you will have success against all your enemies. It doesn't matter if you outnumber them or they outnumber you. You will win. Because my power will be with you. And here they are, losing, losing, losing. So they rightfully ask the question. Wait, why are we defeated? What's 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 going on here? The only problem is, is they didn't think about the question very long. And they didn't think about the question very seriously. Why were they defeated? Because that should have been a wake-up reminder to them. Wait a minute. We're actually not keeping our covenant. We're being unfaithful to our God. Instead, did you notice what they did? Oh, they hatched a plan all right. They hatched a plan, indeed. Did you notice what their plan was? It says this. Verse 3 says, And when the people of Israel came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What? You might hear that. And you know, Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, I thought that was in Indiana Jones. Like, what are you talking about? All right. So for those of you who you might not be familiar with the term Ark, all right, 
That is a Hebrew word that essentially means box. Okay? Box. That's what it is. All right? All the other nations had one of these. All their gods had one of these. When God actually reveals himself to the people. Again, one of the things that we see commonly is that God reveals himself in ways that people can understand. So he says, yeah, all the other nations, yeah, make me a box too. But this one's going to be radically different than all the other nations. So he has them make a box. And what this box does is it symbolizes his presence among the people. Inside of it, he puts a copy of their covenant, their agreement together. That they will be his people and he will be their God. They are to walk faithfully with them. Along with that, he puts in some things that are similar to souvenirs. Things along the way that would remind them that God would always be faithful to them. So this is the symbol of God's presence among them. They go out to battle the first time. They lose. They say, why hasn't God, like, why didn't he deliver us? Oh, we've got a solution. Here's what we'll do. We'll bring out God's box, God's ark, and then what he'll do is he'll have to fight for us. He'll have to. After all, he's there. He's got to do it. Now, I'd be curious what you're thinking right now. Are you thinking good idea? Are you thinking bad idea? Which one is it? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? The thing about Old Testament narrative is that often it does not come out and tell you, oh, Parentheses, by the way, this is a bad idea. What does it do? It provides you hints that this is a bad idea. How does it do that? Look at the last sentence of verse 4. And the two sons of Elah. Remember those two turds? Hophni Phineas. The Ark of the Covenant. Who's got the stamp of approval on this? Those two little priests who are power tripping their way to the top. And immediately, that's the text's way of showing you this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. You see, it's interesting, as I read this this week, because one of the things that you and I will be tempted to do is that when we read specific parts of the Bible, is what I do is I, I call it the stupid stamp, okay? We roll out one of those, like, rubber stamps that we do this. You do this in your mind. And you read about people who do this kind of thing. And what you do, and what I do, is we're like, oh, they're stupid. Why would they do that? Stupid. Why would they do that? <laughs> Stupid. Like, that's what we do. But that's not what the Old Testament was designed to do. The Old Testament was designed to show you that this is generally what human beings do. And guess what you are? You and I are human beings. It means in many ways you were designed to see yourself. And you might be like, David, what, what, like if I was there, like I, I, I wouldn't have do that. I, I, would, I wouldn't have hatched the plan. Let's just think about that for a second. You see, this plan that they hatched seemed very reasonable to them. Like, this is what all the nations would have done. This is how people generally thought about gods. You would bring out your god or your trophy with you into battle, and he would fight for you. This seemed, this seemed 
perfectly reasonable to them. But here's the problem. Not everything that seems reasonable to us and the way we relate to God is actually true. I'll give you an example. This is kind of how I would think it it, it, it works its way out. Some of you have maybe heard me tell this before. So I live, uh, not lived, I went to China um, probably a couple times uh, in the mid-2010s. Uh, and uh, one of the things that they had over there is they have like their own little stories. You know how like Americans, we have three little pigs, that kind of stuff. One of their stories that they have um, is this idea of a master archer, like Robin Hood. Like, um, and what this master archer would do is he would go around from city to city in China. And he would actually compete and find the best person in each city. And he would always fight or always do a, an arrow shooting contest. And he would always win. Bullseye, bullseye, near bullseye, near bullseye, bullseye, near bullseye. So this is what happened. He went to the city. He competed. Bullseye, bullseye, near bullseye, bullseye, near bullseye, near bullseye, bullseye. One, one, one. All the time, this is what he does. Finally, he came to a village one day. And he's, all of a sudden he looked around. He looked at the top of this building. Bullseye. He looked over here. Another bullseye, another bullseye. Bullseye, 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 bullseye. And he's thinking... Whoever lives here is good. So he goes to the town elders and he says, hey, um, can I meet your master archer? And they start to laugh. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? He's like, your master archer. I come and I compete against the best archers to to, to see. Like, yeah, if, if I can do it. And I, I know you guys have one, so can I compete against him? Where is he at? They laugh at him again. They're like, there's no master archer that lives in this town. He's like, that can't be. Like, he's like, I walked into town and I saw all over the buildings, like bullseyes everywhere in town. And they start to laugh again. He stops him. He's like, why are you guys laughing at me? Like, what, what's, what's going on? He's like, no master archer is here. What you saw is the village idiot. What he does is he shoots his arrows and then he comes and paints his bullseyes around it. Which is funny. Because if we're not careful, what happens is our approach to godliness is that we live our lives and what we do is we paint this godly little bullseye around it. It seems perfectly reasonable to us. The only problem is is that it's not true. Here's the big idea. In the Bible we see it begins with Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, here's what's happened. Your and my ability to actually relate to and please God was broken. And now you and I, we do not, even what comes natural to us, we try to approach God in broken ways that do not work. This is why Jesus, for instance, can say things like, many, many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and this in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. 
that human being's ability to gauge what actually pleases the God of the Bible is completely distorted by sin. I compare it to a McDonald's ice cream machine. You might get it right from time to time, but generally all the time it's broken. Here's the thing. You might be wondering, wait. So you're saying, like, how do I I overcome? You know what one of the great things is? That God knows this about us, and he has revealed himself to us. And there's two ways by which we overcome this in our lives. One is the word of God, intentionally placing ourselves under it frequently. Why? So that it can correct the things and we can relate to God properly. Because think, everybody thinks that they know what's true about God. You talk to the waitress today at the restaurant that you go to. She thinks whatever she believes about God is correct. That's why she believes it. But one of the things that the word of God constantly does is it's like, wait a minute, I'm trying to approach God like that is not actually, that does not work. No, 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 no. But the other is actually being among God's people. Being constantly among God's people. Why? Because what happens is when you are in relationship with people, they see things about your character. And the Lord uses them to correct you. And the Lord uses them to correct me. One of my favorite sisters in the history of the church. I loved her. Her name was Maggie. Loved her to death. She was so courageous that she would actually correct me. Like, I love that. There was a time that she sat me down. And she pointed out stuff in my life. I'm like, ooh. Then maybe you're here today. And you're trying to live what almost what I would call the hermit Christian life. You come and you leave. And the extent of your godliness mostly revolves around Sunday morning. But there is no relationship with the brothers and sisters in this church. My friend... I would say that your soul is in danger and that you very well might be painting your own arrows. That this can take multiple different terms. You want to, I'll give you an example. Let's just say his, his name's John. John's a nice guy. He's the flirtatious type. He's a serial dater who dates one girl after another. He enjoys his job and pours all his time into it. He considers himself pretty spiritual, as he frequently reads his Bible. But he sporadically attends his church. He likes the people he goes to church with, but, however, he has his own set of friends and doesn't make any priority to know his church body or be known to them. Honestly, he never really saw the point. John notices when he reads his Bible how it sometimes disapproves of some things that he does. But he's found peace with it by going online, Googling people that tell him, you don't have to read the Bible that way. That there are other explanations. We see one of the ways that God actually corrects us. These people, they carry the ark into battle. That is second nature. They think that's going to solve the problem. That is second. The only problem is that they have not gauged what they believe, whether or not it's true. 
then unless you have God's word and God's people, how is what you're going to believe about God ever going to be corrected? If you were wrong, let's just say you were wrong about something. How would you ever know? You wouldn't. What would happen is God would just begin to be a souped up version of what, of who you are. That one of the things that we see is these people running into foolishness. Why? Because they take for granted what they believe instead of actually having something to check what they believe to see if it's actually right. Brothers and sisters, as those who are part of the new covenant, holy cow, how great do we have it? That we have the word of God, but we have each other. You might be wondering, David, how can I, how can I, how can, how can I, how, what can I do about this? Let's say you kind of have that kind of like hermit spirit to you. Like, it's just like, maybe it's just, you don't like people. You're like, like, like you're the opposite of me. Like, I just love being around people all the time. Give me people, people, people 24 seven. And I'm, I'm great. You might not be like that. And that's okay. The Lord doesn't just save extroverts. Here's some things maybe you can do. Making it a goal once a week to be over at a church member's house. Making it a goal once a week to have maybe people over for dinner at your church. Doing everything to place yourself in relationship with others throughout the week. And avoiding a Sunday-only kind of relationship with people. Texting one another on the weekends. Planning to meet up maybe after a this is a cool one that some of you guys have done with me. It's awesome. Go vacationing with one another. Some of you guys have actually invited me on your vacations. That's crazy. I can't believe you would want me there that long. But I praise the Lord for that. Because actually what you're doing, in many ways, you are actually fulfilling the spirit of this right here. We see... The Israelites run into foolishness because what they do is they just take for granted what they believe about God. The only problem is the thing they believed about God was wrong. So we start with a reckless idea that they have, but then we move on. And we see what happens from this. Let's look at verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of God came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they say, what is this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the people from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become their slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they begin freaking out. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, remember the presence of God, into the camp. What happens? 
The Israelites are expecting, God just showed up, we're going to be good. Like, man, we've got this battle. The Philistines see it, they're, they're freaking out. They're like, oh, their God just came into their camp. We must have forgot ours today. This is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. So what do you think is going to happen? What would you naturally think? I think we would naturally think at this point, oh, okay. So God's going to step in. He's going to fight. Just for the sake of his own honor. But there's something in this text that we have to be reminded that this is not an American text. And here's what I mean. I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second. So for you guys who, who love like the technical terms, this is something that we call the dual authorship of the Bible. Here's what this means. Do we believe that the Bible was written by God? The answer is yes. Do we believe that the Bible is written by man? The answer is yes. That God actually moved through particular men to write specific books of the Bible. Here's the thing. He didn't override their personality, their background, and he didn't just hand them a sheet and say, hey, just copy this. He used their personality, their background, their techniques, their writing style. He used all those things. So here is a fundamental problem that we sometimes run into. That this was written by Middle Eastern people that saw the world very differently than you and I. And they would have read and seen things in here that you and I naturally don't see. And here's one of these things. That whenever a nation, two nations would come together and fight a battle, they would fight a war. The outcome was already seen as finished before the war even started. Here's what I mean. The outcome that played out on the battlefield, all that was is a reflection of a battle that already took place in the heavens between your nation's God and their nation's God. Whoever won later would win on the battlefield. So what happens is if they win, if the Philistines win, they automatically assume, oh yeah, our God, like our God is stronger than their God. That's why we won the day. That's why we won. That this is how they would have seen this. So not only is Israel actually brought in the Ark of the Covenant, but here's one of the things. They've actually staked God's reputation on the line here. That if anybody gets egg on their face today, who gets egg on their face? God does. So what's going to happen? Who's going to take the shame? Is God going to simply step in just for his namesake? Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons Eli of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So what does God do? He takes the shame. He takes the shame. 
Why would he do this? Because now, he takes the shame. He's seen as this weak God. Israel's all disappointed in him because he didn't come through. The Philistines think that their God is stronger than him. I think someone I read this week probably put it best. He said this. He said, the God of the Bible would rather suffer shame than allow you and I to carry on some kind of false relationship with him. That the God of the Bible will allow you and I to be disappointed with him if it will awaken us to the kind of God that he actually is. That God at this point in the story takes the shame. Which is interesting. Because if you know your Bible well enough, you will also know that this is not the last time God takes the shame. That there would be another day when God would take the shame as well, except this time he would actually be in the form of a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was crucified, what he was doing is he was taking the shame of you and I. That you and I, our biggest problem is that you and I have shamed God. We've shamed him. We have lived a particular life that has actually told lies about him. Remember, you're made in the image of God. That means when you and I rebel and do something that is totally out of character for God, we're actually proclaiming with our lives, this is what God is like. That you and I have shamed him. Either through open rebellion or through hollow religiosity. Either way, whatever your story is, and maybe your story is both. That Jesus Christ was shamed. Why? So that us who are shameful would have our shame removed. That we see here that God takes all the shame in first Samuel. He is seen as the weak God. He is seen as the one, oh, he can't deliver his people. And he takes it. He takes it. Why is this good news for us? If we fast forward to the New Testament, it's not just because, for instance, oh, you don't go to hell. I don't go to hell if you believe in Jesus. Now, that is true. But here's one of the things that happens. When God takes the shame from you, when he was crucified, he took your shame. And what he did is he actually took your shameful past and gave you his perfect past and what that does is it removes every ounce of shame that you need to feel about your past he switched paths with us here's one of the things that this frankly allows us to do this allows us to speak very candidly about our past sins to brothers and sisters in Jesus we can speak about our past history with substance abuse, past sexual sins, past food abuse, past failures as parents or children. We can speak of why. Because Jesus Christ has removed the shame and he has given us his past instead of our shameful past. 
that no longer are we the people that we once were. No way. No way. It allows us to speak candidly of our sins, which has another effect. Here's the other effect. It helps you to counsel one another in the church. That part of your job, part of my job is the body of Christ. As you and I are constantly counseling one another, listening to the circumstances of one another, and being like, hmm, that sounds great. Have you thought about this? Like we're constantly counseling one another. And one of the things that says is Jesus has now dealt with the past. So why? It helps us now so that we can actually use our past in a way that can help other people who are going through similar things. And this is what the Lord has done. That part of our call to response to this text today, part of it is it, it's an embrace to throw ourselves on the word and throw ourselves in intimate relationship with other people. Lest we go around painting our own arrows. It's a call to embrace Jesus Christ as the one who has taken our shame from us. That at his very heart, he is a shame remover. Which is amazing because it openly allows us to finally heal. And it now allows us to openly confess. That part of the early church is that you had a group of people who would actually even come up and begin confessing their sins. See, to the American mind, that seems extremely off-putting. Because why? Because we love to hide. And we love to appear naturally as better people than we actually are. When what the gospel does, the gospel has actually told the truth about us and removed the shame in the process. That we get to the end of this text and we see the beauty of God and the fact that he's not willing, he's not, he's not afraid to take the shame. Why? So that these people would not live in some kind of false relationship with him. Is that you today, my friend? Living in some kind of false relationship with him. Assuming things about them that honestly just isn't really true. And you kind of sit there and you kind of wonder, why haven't I seen a lot of change in my life? Why? I'm like, well, what, what's going on here? My friend, that could be your problem. Could be. Not necessarily, but could be. I think the Lord is calling us to embrace these things. Make us fundamentally wise people, people here. That we are fundamentally different. Because we now have the Spirit of God. So my friend, that's my prayer for you today, that you would embrace and put yourself under the Word of God. But not only that, that you would put yourself into intimate relationships with one another in this church body. 
that the only time you talk to, to brothers and sisters would not just be on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. But that you would actually have a deep relationship. Why? Because that's one of the ways that God actually corrects our misunderstandings of him. That we're people who are constantly repenting, constantly turning. But also that we would embrace the one who has taken our shame from us. Why? Because then we can actually speak very candidly about who we were. Which gives our brothers and sisters hope. Because you've been changed, now so can they. So guys, with that being said, we're going to sing a very appropriate song this morning all to jesus i surrender like like most, we grew up with that one we heard that one a lot but like literally that's what our that's what our desire is this morning that our lives would be surrendered to him both by putting ourselves under his word but also by putting ourselves into intimate relationships with one another may that be you my friend may that be you brother may that be you sister may you not Hit the eject button as soon as we say amen on any given Sunday. Let me pray, guys. And then we'll respond. Lord, we confess that this is us. Father, that we look at at this text and we see things about these people and and with their assumptions about you and the problem was father that their assumptions just were not informed that the damage of adam's fall was much worse than we think lord that we constantly think things about you that just frankly aren't true and then we look back and wonder why didn't god come through why is there so much damage in my life but the only problem is everything that we've been assuming about you is not actually reality but that we learn that through your word that we learn that through relationship with others. Lord, we praise you this morning because you are the one who has taken away our shame. You are the one who has taken our shame and you have cast it as far as the east is from the west. No longer those pretending that all is well and good. But those who can show up on a Sunday morning with tears in their eyes from the hard week that it was. Father, we praise you that you have given us these kind of people, people who can be transparent. And in doing so, having the joy of the gospel deeply welled up and in us, that though we are disappointed, there is a joy. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray that we would be these people. Lord, we ask it and we plead this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.